Welcome to PS Editor's Podcast, where we engage PS contributors and other experts on some of the day's most pressing challenges. I'm Greg Bruno, an associate editor at Project Syndicate. Today, we're going to Washington, D.C. The intersection of gender and power is among the most important social and political issues of our time. From the Golden Globes to street demonstrations in Iran, women are demanding equity in a world long dominated by men. But as my guest today has argued, gender equality is an economic as well as a moral imperative. Failure to level the playing field almost always underpins stagnation, while eliminating obstacles promotes growth. Rachel Vogelstein is Director of Women and Foreign Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., and she's a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Legal Challenges at the Yale Law School. She was a senior advisor to U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on issues related to the advancement of women, and she advised Clinton's presidential campaign on women's issues. Let's give her a call. Hi. Hi, Rachel. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today on PS Editor's podcast. It's my pleasure. So let's get right to it. You've written a lot about gender equality and female empowerment. And your recent piece in Foreign Affairs makes the case that while advocates have long framed this as a moral cause, it's also an important economic one. So why exactly is a country's economic health tied so closely to gender equality? Today, there's really a strong body of evidence demonstrating that advancing gender equality matters to economic growth. There are a number of leading financial institutions and private sector corporations that have all concluded that essentially when women participate in the economy, poverty goes down and GDP goes up. I'll give a few examples of, from some of the research that we've seen over the past several decades. There are economists at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, estimating that closing the gap in women's labor force participation across OECD countries would lead to gains of about 12% by 2030, uh, including about 20% in Japan and Korea and 22% in Italy. We've also seen analyses from the World Economic Forum, which is you know, not exactly known as a bastion of feminist theory. It's a quote unquote hard economic policy organization. And they put out an annual gender gap report, and that measures the gap between men and women in a given country in terms of economic participation and a range of other factors. And the analysis shows that in countries where the gender gap is closest to being closed, those countries are more economically prosperous and secure. And we've seen similar results from analyses in the private sector as well. So McKinsey Global Institute released a study assessing the potential gain of gender equality and workforce participation at between 12 and 28 trillion globally. So to put that another way, that's about 26% of annual global gross domestic product if we only close the gap between men and women by 2025. So think about that at a time when you know, the international community is still struggling in many respects to recover from an economic downturn that has roiled not only markets, but also political systems around the world. We are literally leaving trillions of dollars of economic potential on the table. So the numbers are quite fascinating, uh, and the potential is massive. But I wonder if it matters, even if governments know this, the potential is there. 
um, if there are challenges, uh, you know, social challenges that, that might make implementing the changes uh, possible. For instance, if there's no one to stay, you know, if there's no one to look after the kids or if, if, if independence might mean more dangers for women, how does a country go about closing the gap and taking advantage of the potential uh, and dealing with the social challenges at the same time? Well, one of the key elements of reform to advance gender equality in the workplace is leveling the legal playing field for women. So the World Bank has tracked laws that limit women's economic participation for, for many years now, and they find that about 90% of the world's economies that they're able to track have at least one law on the books that limits women's economic participation. And in some cases, there are 10 or more laws. And this can range from anything from limitations on the number of hours that women can work or the types of jobs they can hold to spousal consent requirements in order for a woman to work, to limitations on the ability to own or inherit property or sign a contract. These laws disadvantage women in the workplace, but I think the case that I made in the piece that is really worth considering from an economic perspective is that these laws limit economic growth potential. So there's a broad effect, and part of changing the baseline for women means that we need to work with governments to make sure we have a level playing field for women from a legal perspective. Right. I think you quoted that uh, 90% of the world's economies have a law like this. And uh, and, and interestingly, you, you, you kind of mentioned countries that are on the, 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 the spectrum, I would suppose, of um, liberal application um, uh, of gender equality. And, you know, in Pakistan, women can't work around machinery. And then in France, women can't lift more than 55 pounds on the job. And the list goes on. I wonder, though, if these laws are in any way economically defensible by the countries that have them implemented. The research shows that when limitations on women's economic participation are lifted and when other structural and cultural barriers to women's participation in the workplace are addressed, that we see two really important effects. We see economies grow and we see poverty go down. And this affects not only individual women, but their families, their communities, their economies. So when women are able to be educated when they are able to uh, delay marriage beyond childhood, um, when they're able to participate in the economy, their children are also more likely to be healthy, to be educated, and to thrive. And so that creates an intergenerational cycle um, that is quite positive, as opposed to when women are um, growing up as girls and they're pulled out of the educational system, when they're married off as children, when they are unable to participate in the economy, that has an effect of creating an intergenerational cycle of poverty with ill effects with respect to health and education for children um, that becomes very difficult to break. Yeah, and I think I re recall reading a statistic that women are more likely to invest in their families than men. And if financial inclusion um, uh, for women in the workplace is, is, is afforded, then countries actually uh, do better off um, economically simply because uh, of that reinvestment potential. That's right. And we also see effects related to children's health and education when women are educated and when they're able to participate 
in the workforce and contribute to their families economically. Uh, but when you add it up from an economic perspective, there is also a growth effect. And that's why we're seeing leaders like Christine Lagarde at the IMF factor into economic health assessments the question of whether there's a level playing field for women in the workplace. And that's a sea change because we're looking at this not only as a human rights issue, which it certainly is, uh, but really also as an economic issue, as a growth issue. And, and just to expand, what about land rights? Access to land, especially in agriculture in the global south, is a, a, big, uh, a big factor in economic ability and potential. Uh, and yet it's it's a right and it, uh, that that women simply don't have access to. That's right. I mean, there are still many countries in which women are not permitted to own or inherit land on the same terms as men. There are also places where we've seen reform and where laws are too frequently ignored when it comes to implementation. There are many places where notwithstanding a legal right that women might have to own property or to inherit, that in practice, the land passes to men in the family rather than to women. And that has effects on not only women's ability to survive and their livelihoods, but also on their ability to contribute to economic growth. So if you think about the importance of title, of property ownership to collateral, to the ability to participate in the financial system, that affects whether a woman can start a business, whether she can grow her business. Um, that artificially limiting who can contribute to our economy has a negative effect that all of us suffer. So you mentioned that, that there have been examples of reform. Where, where specifically are we seeing reforms that are optimistic and positive? Well, you know, I think it's important to be optimistic given the reform that we've seen around the world. In the last two years alone, 65 countries have enacted almost 100 legal changes to increase women's economic opportunities. And one of the most interesting stories that we saw in 2017 was the change that took place in Saudi Arabia, a place where women arguably face more restrictions on their ability to participate in the public sphere than any other part of the world. What we saw in Saudi Arabia is in an economy that was struggling because of low oil prices, there was a recognition that increasing female workforce participation was critical to spurring economic growth and to the economic modernization efforts um, that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is currently pursuing. So we saw that after decades of advocacy, finally the government in Saudi Arabia made the decision to lift the driving ban that previously limited abil women's ability to travel freely and to participate uh, equally in the economy. M most people who analyzed that shift concluded that it took place not because of a growing recognition of the importance of women's rights, but really because of the economic imperative of economic growth and the recognition that increasing the participation of women in the labor force in Saudi Arabia 
was critical to everyone. Yeah, another country that recently made some headlines was in Iceland uh, and, and the, uh, the law banning gender pay gaps. Um, but I was reminded of, of something I read many years ago, um, an American sociologist, Barbara Reskin, who suggested, I think in 1988 or something, that, that this is a problem that it won't go away, um, uh, certainly not on its own, but it, it'll be even more difficult to deal with because leadership roles, um, either in, in government and business, are overwhelmingly male. Men have an incentive to, as she puts it, quote, preserve their advantage. So why are we optimistic that this advantage uh, is now potentially being challenged or has the ability to be challenged? Is it simply because of the recognition of the economic potential? Or are there other social societal changes like the Me Too movement in the United States and now sweeping the world? I think the answer is both. I mean, I think it is really a sea change when we see leaders from Saudi Arabia to Japan making the case that growing women's labor force participation is critical to the economic health and survival of nations. You know, we saw that, as I said, in Saudi Arabia with the rescission of the driving ban. We've also seen that in Japan, a very different part of the world, a very different society where Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has made growing the participation of women in the labor force a key pillar of his economic growth strategy, in particular, taking steps to amplify childcare and to change social norms so that women are able to participate um, similarly to men uh, in contributing to their economies. So I think those leadership changes, uh, in addition to what we're seeing at multilateral economic institutions like the IMF that are now asking questions about women's ability to participate in the economy as part of their assessments of the fiscal health of nations, those policy changes, those leadership changes are really significant. But I think you've also tapped into another really important shift that we are seeing both here at home in the United States and around the world with the Me Too movement and the willingness of women to raise their voices, to demand fair treatment in the workplace in ways that we really haven't seen before. The Me Too movement has gone global. Um, over 60 countries in the world, we've seen activism where women are demanding fair treatment in the workplace. And I do think that the leadership question that you referenced will be a critical part of the solution. That while we are starting to see important shifts in the law and while the cultural shift that we are currently witnessing is important given the bravery and the rising tide of activism we're seeing by women here in the United States and around the world, that the third piece of this puzzle to really accelerate progress is to make sure that we are leveling the playing field for women to participate in leadership roles across sectors. That's as true in the private sector as it is in public life. And that's an area where we've seen arguably the least amount of progress in the last several decades that have witnessed remarkable changes in women's lives around the world. We've actually seen the number of women heads of state, for example, decline from 21 to 18 out of 193 UN member states. That's disturbing. And when we look at the proportion of women in parliaments, which is still under 25%, um, there's clearly a lot of work to do. That's 
equally true in the C-suite than in other parts of the private sector. And when we look at the proportion of women who are in leadership roles in the private sector, um, women hover at about you know, 5% of leaders of the Fortune 500. And across the private sector, we see too few women in leadership positions. Ultimately, the Me Too movement that has exposed an epidemic of sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace is about a power imbalance. And we will need to rectify that imbalance in order to see long-term systemic change. Yeah, so I guess you know, moving from uh, the question of uh, of what needs to be done um, to the process of how it, it, it can be done. And can you have that kind of rebalancing, I suppose, when the problem is legal, as you point out in, in your piece, um, but we don't have the percentage of women in positions of leadership and power to push through legal change. I think the problem that we're seeing is a manifestation of barriers across three spheres. There are legal barriers to women's economic participation. There are structural barriers to their participation in the labor force, including the disproportionate burden of unpaid work from child care to elder care to care of the home that women shoulder, um, to cultural barriers that affect our perceptions of women's ability to compete and to lead in the workplace. We're seeing profound changes across all three of those areas. And my belief is it's the combination of reform in each of those areas that will lead to lasting change. Right. So we've talked about India and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. I was struck in your piece, a lot of onus put on the United States as being a leading voice on, on this issue. I think you quoted the president's daughter as being someone who could take this issue and really um, uh, help push it forward. I wonder how realistic that is in uh, in a period of time where America's international clout is is as low as it's been, and foreign aid programs are on the chopping block. Can the U.S. really lead on this? Um, depending on that answer, um, who else can pick up the torch and, and carry it carry it forward? You know, we've seen gender equality elevated as a pillar of U.S. foreign policy, um, imperative, a strategic imperative that advanced U.S. interests and prosperity and stability around the world over the past three consecutive presidential administrations. You know, in the Clinton administration, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright created the first office focused on global women's issues. We saw under Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice in the George W. Bush administration, a lot of work done on girls' education, which is arguably the single best development investment that can be made, uh, as well as efforts to advance the rights of Afghan women, efforts that continue today. Uh, in the Obama administration, we saw these issues elevated still further by Secretary Clinton with the creation of the position of U.S. Ambassador at Large for Global Women's Issues and many initiatives to integrate a focus on gender equality into the fabric of U.S. foreign policy. So there's really been a bipartisan commitment to this issue because of the recognition that when women and girls are accorded equal rights and responsibilities, that countries are more prosperous and secure. So this is in U.S. interests. And the case that I made in the foreign affairs article I wrote recently is that if this administration, if the Trump administration 
believes in the economic empowerment of women around the world, then it is insufficient to simply focus on increasing women's entrepreneurship or access to capital, that to generate returns on investment in women's entrepreneurship, we really need a more comprehensive approach that gets to many of the legal, cultural, and structural barriers to women's economic participation that we've talked about. Well, that was a very diplomatic way to put it. I don't know that I would have been that diplomatic myself. Let me, let me perhaps add to that. Um, I think in a moment where the U.S. government has essentially spurned the mantle of global leadership, I do have deep concerns about whether the bipartisan tradition of elevating the rights of women and girls around the world um, will be sustained. The comments and behavior of the current president have really undermined the U.S.'s role as a leader on women's rights around the world and caused many countries to question our commitment to these issues. Um, so I encourage the administration um, to do more. I also believe that there are other actors that can and should step into the void and make clear that elevating the rights of women and girls is not just the right thing to do, it is also the smart thing to do. So whether it's actors in the multilateral landscape from the UN to many of the economic multilateral organizations that we've talked about, like the International Monetary Fund, or whether it's the private sector stepping in to reform its own policies and practices to advance women's economic participation in countries around the world, or whether it's civil society organizations that are standing up for the human rights of women uh, in countries around the world. There are many others who will accept the mantle of global leadership if the U.S. government won't. Well, I think that's a, an optimistic way to, to leave it. Very illuminating, Rachel. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. It was great to be here. That was Rachel Vogelstein, director of the Women in Foreign Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you like our content, our annual magazine is available for order now. Head over to our website, www.project-syndicate.org, to order your copy. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.